Well, I'm glad, Carol, that you're preaching on that text and not me. <laughs> it's a joy to welcome you here to worship, Carol. Um, we greatly benefited from your input yesterday at our morning workshop, and we're also looking forward to this after, or the second hour will you be sharing with us once again. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for Carol, for her life, her rich ministry of justice and advocacy. Continue to bless her and prosper her work. And give us ears now to hear what you have placed upon her heart to share with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's uh, it's a real delight to be here, and um, I particularly want to thank Todd and Danette and Jasmine for their just wonderful and warm hospitality. It's been it's been just a delight. Um, I grew up, but just down the street in Westchester, so I currently live in Minnesota. But it's it's it feels so good to be to be back here in a, the land of sort of uneven sidewalks and row homes and donuts that weigh a pound and proper hoagies. So it's a, it just feels really good and I thank you for the invitation. The writer um, David Foster Wallace wrote a charming and fascinating philosophical travel piece titled Consider the Lobster in which he reflected upon his experience as a visitor to the Maine Lobster Festival, an event that's held every summer in Rockford, Maine. The well-attended festival includes a 10K race, the sea goddess coronation, the big parade, because after all, who doesn't want to get dressed up as a lobster and ride on a float? The great international lobster crate race, a seafood cooking contest, live music, and of course, lots of lobster eating. Over 25,000 pounds of it, in fact. It is quite an elaborate tribute to a creature that I think most of us would not identify as cute, cuddly, or particularly endearing. Now, while I was certainly capable of identifying a lobster, if one was presented to me, I confess that I did not know much about their finer points prior to reading Wallace's essay. <clears throat> there I learned, for example, that lobsters are marine crustaceans of the family Homeridae, with five pairs of jointed legs, the first pair terminating with those familiar pinchers or claws used for protection or to get prey. Lobsters are both hunters and scavengers. They have eyes on little stalks, gills on their legs, thick antenna, and of course, an external skeleton like insects, spiders, and centipedes. Indeed, Wallace notes that lobsters are basically giant sea insects. 
which when you really look at them, makes a lot of sense. They are ancient animals dating from the Jurassic period and they can live for 100 years or more. Who knew? Who knew? Oh, and, and one other thing about lobsters is that according to the Mosaic law, Jews aren't allowed to eat them. They are to be considered detestable to them. From Leviticus, these you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the streams, such you may eat, but nothing in the seas or the streams that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and among all the other living creatures that are in the waters, they are detestable to you and detestable they shall remain. Of their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall regard as detestable. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. The lobster is off limits, along with a whole host of other creatures listed in Leviticus that include camels and pigs and hares and rock badgers and eagles and owls and dozens more. What is this all about? The book of Leviticus is predominantly a series of God's speeches to Moses that Moses then repeats to the Israelites. Unlike, for example, the book of Exodus, Leviticus is not a narrative of the historical journey of the Israelites. Rather, it lays out the responsibilities of the priesthood and offers a detailed compilation of religious regulations, as well as ritual and criminal law that is to be practiced by the priests and the whole community in order to be pure and holy. Our text today is from a section of Leviticus that deals with uncleanliness of various types. It must be said that many of the rules and laws deta detailed in Leviticus, and there are a lot of rules, uh, particularly in the holiness code in chapter 17 to 26, They've been a source of sort of puzzlement and mystery to many for eons. Why are they there? Some people have suggested that the purpose of rules related to food and eating were medicinal to protect the health of the Israelites. For example, a diet rich in pork in a very warm climate is unwise because the meat can go bad and you can get trichinosis and, and die. That sounds reasonable, but when scientists really examine the food and all of the restrictions, there really did not seem to be any overall health benefit for the community. Others have claimed that these rules were a way for the Hebrews to distinguish themselves from foreigners and or heathen religious practices but it's noted that the community was inconsistent in this, adopting some foreign practices and rejecting others. Still, other scholars have suggested that there is no real rhyme or reason for the restrictions, which is precisely the whole point. In other words, the holiness code and the rules about cleanliness reflect unethical discipline where one's whole life is ordered around these commandments of God. 
faithful practice of these dietary and lifestyle commands is how one attains holiness. So every time a Jew rejects pork, for example, they are reminded that they do so because of their obedience to God. This is an interesting perspective and, and seems to have some merit. But at least in my mind, it also reflects a God who seems rather capricious and arbitrary. Is this kind of absorption really the best way to know God? A final explanation of these rules that rather intrigues me is one offered by anthropologist Mary Douglas. Back in 1966, she wrote a slim yet fascinating book called Purity and Danger. In it, she reminds us that every culture has a certain set of assumptions about life and reality that is assumed not only to be true, but also to be right. Guided by these assumptions, cultures organize themselves and establish systems of labels, classification, and patterns that help to provide boundaries, content, and meaning. In this way, a, a member of the culture who abides by the rules and assumptions can feel secure, safe, and confident as they go about their lives. It's also a way to maintain particular hierarchies and structures of power, who is in and who is out, who is pure and who is not. According to Douglas, the Hebrews had a particular system of classification and order that functioned well for them until it met up with the lobster and the rock badger and the pig. These were all creatures who did not neatly fit into the tidy Hebrew categories of how the animals were supposed to be. The lobster doesn't have scales and fins and swim in a way that, the, that they thought God intended proper sea creatures to do. The pig is cloven hoof, but is not a ruminator like proper livestock that also provide milk and hides or wools for the pastoral life so honored by God. And the rock badger. I don't, I don't really know what a rock badger is, but according to the text, it is a type of ruminator, yet does not have divided hooves, like the Hebrews thought proper pastoral animals were supposed to have. So like the pig and the lobster, the rock badger doesn't fit properly into this system and for that reason becomes unclean and rejected. The birds are a little more puzzling, except that rather than eat insects or seed, these birds are scavengers or birds of prey. Actually, I was rather proud or rather pleased to see owls on the list because I'm rather fond of the species would hate to see them eaten. The book of Leviticus is, is just filled with species that are either imperfect members of their class or for whom there is something about their very nature that confounds the whole classification scheme of the Hebrew people. These creatures don't conform. They don't fit. Their very bodies are anomalies that disrupt and threaten the established order of things. 
They're odd, queer, if you will. For this reason, they are marked as dangerous, unclean, detestable. They are to be avoided by good Jews who want to remain pure. Of course, cultural systems of classification extend to people as well as animals. Leviticus includes numerous rules about gender expression and sexuality and ailments and family life and class behaviors and the list goes on and on. And it's not just the Israelites. Each of us here has been profoundly shaped by our cultural assumptions about what constitutes a proper family or how men and women are supposed to behave and dress and move in the world or what it means to have a particular skin color or be a particular size or age or identity or what determines whether we are a citizen with value or an alien to be discarded. Douglas suggests that this need and determination to generate order in life is disrupted by the intrusion of the anomaly, the non-conforming, the queer. These characters create confusion, anxiety, and uncertainty. It's not clear how they fit and what they mean. And so the system often pushes back by avoiding or shunning or physically containing or ritualizing or even by condemning these anomalies as dangerous, unwanted, or worthy of death. Mennonites should understand this. After all, Mennonites know a little something about what happens when you violate dominant assumptions about how life or religion is supposed to be organized. The pacifist grates against cultural expectations of the masculine warrior. The simple life stands in contrast to cultural assumptions about value and accumulation. When you practice believer's baptism or refuse to give your body to the state for the purposes of war, there is pushback. You become labeled as dangerous, detestable, problematic. You become the peculiar in the land, the queer. It all sounds rather grim. However, Douglas offers one more potential response of culture to the challenge of anomalies. She says, positively, we can deliberately confront the anomaly and try to create a new pattern of reality in which it has a place. We can create a new pattern of reality in which it has a place. I like to think of this as doing queer work. My friend Wendy Moore O'Neill defines queer work as anything that threatens the status quo for the sake of the marginalized. I love that definition. So when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, eats with sinners, talks openly with women and praises the Samaritan, he is disrupting this careful system of classification and value and power 
and creating a new pattern of reality, he is being queer. He is doing queer work. When asked about his mother and brothers, and he responds, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, he is violating deeply held norms about the right composition of family. He is calling for queer inclusion. When he praises the widow for her might, chastises the pompous and drives out the money changers, he is seeing temple practices through queer eyes. And when he says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, he is queering economics and social status. And when he rises from the dead, well, that is one of the queerest things of all, offering hope and life in the midst of despair and death. So in fact, just about every time that Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say, we can be pretty sure that he's getting ready to queer up social assumptions about how life is supposed to operate and who are the ones that are supposed to matter. With his life and words, he lays out a new pattern of reality in which the excluded have a place. The marginalized find a home where the peacemakers are called the children of God, where the captives are released, the oppressed go free, where the queer is embraced. We are in hard and painful times right now in our church, our country, and across the world. The pandemic has exposed brutal discrepancies in terms of who lives and who is expendable. Civil rights are being systematically clawed back the environment is collapsing from patterns of ruthless extraction and disregard. Billionaires are taking joy rides into space while millions go hungry. Social trust is being carefully manipulated and torn to further individual lust for power and sometimes just ratings. Our country is in turmoil as a significant faction pushes hard to maintain racist and nationalistic assumptions about who matters, who is important, and how social order must be maintained. I wish, I wish the queer Jesus was here right now. We desperately need him. We need that radical shift in how to classify and understand the world we need his vision of a reality that stresses compassion and courage, sharing and love, possibility and hope. We need that push to see and look out for the most vulnerable among us, to celebrate new formats of family, to expand our boundaries about who is our neighbor, to understand the rightness of the last and the least being foremost in our minds to look with suspicion upon power that excludes, demeans, or manically declares its own greatness. I wish the queer Jesus was here. It's easy to despair. But then I look around and I note that the world is full of so many 
wonderfully queer creatures, lobsters, pigs, and camels, and rabbits, and rock badgers, and small owls, and great owls, and herons, and maybe even a Mennonite here and there. And I am reminded that the queer Jesus is still very much among us, witnessing to a profound hope and meaning that has the power to change lives and systems and awaken the very best in us. It seems that God is not yet finished with us. To you at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church, I thank you for your willingness to work hard at practicing what it means to be a queer people. Thank you for your determination to keep seeking and striving towards a church and society where there is more space that is more inclusive, more imaginative, more inquisitive, more compassionate, more loving, a church and community that is more wonderfully queer, just like Jesus was, just like Mennonites have often been. And with God's help and yours, just like more of us might become. Thanks be to God.